Hello, and welcome inside my chewy head. What kind of person gets locked up in a mental hospital? Someone violent? Unpredictable? Dangerous? What does it take to end up on an acute psychiatric ward? And if you did, would you ever tell anyone about it? This podcast is about dispelling myths, fear and stigma surrounding mental health from my own personal experience as a patient. Coming up on today's episode, I talk about Liam. I cover conversations with the police. I discuss mental health advocacy. And I also talk about conversations that I probably definitely shouldn't have overheard. But first... Today's podcast is presented by Podgo. Podgo is the easiest way for you to monetize your podcast, providing podcasters with a flat rate for ad space, so you always know how much you get when you include an ad from Podgo. I recently joined as a member and you can too. Apply today to become a member and immediately be connected with advertisers that fit your audience. That's podgo.co at p-o-d-g-o co. And don't forget that if you include my podcast name, Chewy Head Podcast, in the How Did You Hear About Podco section, I could get an additional $5, which roughly converts into £4. So please help me because every penny counts. Well, here we are again, using the magical means of the internet to virtually connect with one another over the topic of Liam. Liam was... I'd say in his 30s, somewhere between 30 and 40, he had a bald head, which in my opinion made it more difficult to discern how old he was. And his entrance onto the ward was potentially one of the most significant and memorable appearances onto the ward that I had had up until that point in the first hospital that I was at. So it's a Friday night and I'm waiting in the meds queue and there are six or seven other people standing there. We've all been waiting for a good half an hour by now. The nurse isn't even in the meds cabinet area or dispensary, that's the term. I always forget that term. But we're just waiting anyway because, I mean, what else do we have to do? So we're standing there, Tina's wandering around, pushing in and farting, whatever else. And all of a sudden, this male patient storms down the corridor on the phone It's a very high energy, stressful situation in that he's being pursued by one of the nurses. Now, a few people in the queue are looking around thinking, brilliant, this is it. We're about to get meds. No, that is not what's happening because this nurse is absolutely focused 100% on Liam and what's going on with him. So Liam is talking to the police on the phone and he's saying, excuse me, I need assistance. I'm being held somewhere against my will. I've just arrived here. I don't know exactly where it is, but I need to be... I need the police to come and to take these, take me out of this situation, basically. And the nurse is obviously in the background going, Liam, Liam, give me the phone. Liam, stop it. Liam, you cannot. Excuse me. Liam, Liam, you're in hospital. No, like in the background the whole time. And this goes on for several minutes. I think Liam's quite confused, maybe a bit disorientated. I can hear the police on the other end of the phone are definitely very confused. And eventually what they do, I think they could probably hear the nurse in the background, is they the police ask to speak to the nurse. So Liam passes the phone over to the nurse and essentially the nurse is uh, begins the conversation by saying, hello, I am nurse so-and-so currently on the acute psychiatric ward in the hospital in which we were in. And she makes it very, very plain through those terms that obviously Liam is, is being held. He's absolutely right. But that that is 
obviously for his own good and that, that the police do not need to come. And the phone call ends and Liam is furious at this. One thing that really characterised Liam was the fact that I don't know whether it's because he so he was originally from Eastern Europe and I don't know whether there was some form of language barrier going on potentially I don't know how good his English was because I never really had that many conversations with him and he was very kind of decisive in terms of what he believed and what he didn't believe so if he believed in something then that that was that really and it, he genuinely believed for some reason and there was no one going to dissuade him from the belief that if he called the police, the police would help him. And so obviously when the nurse terminated this phone call, Liam was very unhappy with this situation and he got quite irate at the nurse who presently handed him back the phone, which possibly wasn't a great decision. And Liam subsequently redialed the police. And this cycle of the police being wrong went on for a good, I'd say, 10 minutes all the while I'm standing there in the queue, finding it really rather entertaining for a Friday night. And essentially, it got to the stage where the nurse had to physically remove the phone from him, which obviously did not go well. And that was my first impression of Liam. Liam's determination continued the following morning when, as I was walking into breakfast, I noticed that he was by the door, which was obviously a locked door that led to the outside world. And he was very, very patiently explaining, because obviously there are different staff changeovers at different times of the day and the night. And so obviously the, the members of staff that were on during that morning were different to the people who potentially had admitted him onto the ward the previous evening. So he was trying to very patiently and calmly explain to the the new members of staff that he shouldn't be here and he's going to leave now. And they were saying no, you, you can't leave. Unfortunately, Liam, you have to be here because the doctor has said legally that, that we are now responsible for you. So you are not allowed to leave. And he, he just would not accept this. And I remember he had his coat on, which I think was all he came in with. He didn't come in with anything. Um, I don't know who brought him in. It may well have been the police. I don't know. But he was determined that he that he was walking through that door and they had a, like a proper standoff. And I remember again that he got really quite angry. And I was just like, wow, this guy, I don't think I've ever met someone quite so pig-headed. And again, I don't know whether this was a language barrier thing, because obviously English wasn't his first language. I don't know. But he he really had a determination, uh, which I, I aspire to have, because I think, you know, in, in another situation, there'd be no stopping that man, no flies on that man, let me tell you. But anyway, obviously... He lost the battle and I don't know whether he lost the war or not because I actually never saw him leave the ward in terms of being reintroduced into the community because I moved hospital before he, he left. But that's a bit later on in the story. So yeah, so he settled into the ward somewhat, I would say, but he was very, very withdrawn. He didn't really mix with many of the other patients. He was sectioned, obviously, because, you know, otherwise he definitely wouldn't have come willingly. So he wasn't allowed off the ward at all because I think he was such a high risk. And so, you know, he spent a lot of time around the other patients, but he wouldn't necessarily interact with them. He tended to eat at the edge of a table. So he would eat literally as far away from everybody else as he possibly could. He'd usually have his hood up and he was he just came across as very withdrawn. I respected that. I was, you know, 
no problem with with someone not wanting to talk to me. That was one less person to bother with. So I was okay with it. But when he when I did have very small interactions with him, so for example, obviously I had about 15 million pens that I would use to do my colouring with in the dining room. And if I think one time he, he asked to borrow a pen, very, very polite, no problem with that. And again, with the staff generally, apart from obviously the moments when they kind of had a meeting of, of two conflicting perspectives, other than those times, he was very polite with the nurses and with the staff. He wasn't disruptive at all. And I couldn't really see what was wrong with him. He didn't come across as unwell in the same way that maybe Tina or Philip or Stephanie or maybe even me would have done. Because I think with with people like them, you could look at them and think, oh, you're definitely really quite unwell. And even with me, you know, I looked like some sort of sea witch that had been dragged onto land and then mauled by a strange bear. That was kind of my physical appearance uh, throughout my time in hospital. And I suppose that if you had met me or encountered me on the ward, I don't think you would have thought, oh, what a vivacious, wonderfully engaging young lady. I'd love to have dinner with her. I really don't think that that's the vibe that I was giving off. And I suppose I don't know that he was necessarily giving off a I'm a gregarious people person vibe, but he wasn't giving off a I'm severely mentally unwell vibe either. So I really couldn't, didn't really know what to make of him. And because he was quiet and because there were some rather dominating other characters, I didn't really spend much time with him or give him much thought. I noticed that he was never in the meds queue and he did occasionally have moments where he he kind of built up to, right, that's it. I'm leaving the ward. I've had enough now. And obviously those would be the altercations that he would have with staff. But they were, they were kind of, they got less and less as time went on. His wife would come and visit and she was honestly probably more distressed than he was like every single time I don't think I ever saw her smile the entire time that she would come and visit him which is potentially fair enough but she was always very sad and very teary and there were lots of there were lots of moments of crying and she just seemed really 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 distressed and to be honest when she would visit I would get a little bit frustrated because I liked to be on my own and he, when you had a visitor and you weren't allowed to leave the ward, you could go into the ladies' lounge, which, as we know, wasn't a lazy ladies' lounge at all. But that meant that there was a room less for me to go and stare at the wall in on my own, be on my own, I suppose. And so, and they would always have really, really, really long time. So it'd be like his wife would arrive at like, I don't know, one o'clock in the afternoon. She wouldn't leave until like four. So I'm there like, oh, for God's sake, I just want a space, a bit of, a bit of time away from Brian telling me that he's God or Philip talking nonsense at me. You know, I just wanted a bit of peace and quiet. And <laughs> let me tell you, that was that was like gold dust on that ward. And so whenever she would turn up, I would immediately be like, oh, for goodness sake, here we go. There goes my afternoon plans of taking a, a few lorazepam and just lying there contemplating the futility of life. But yeah, that was kind of my initial impressions of him. However, these drastically shifted when one afternoon, as usual, I was colouring away. I had my headphones on that I always plugged into. So, you know, really to just kind of confirm that idea of I'm busy. Don't look at me. Don't interact with me. I'm just trying to pretend I'm not here because mentally I'm not here because I'm listening to my headphones. So that was what I was doing, which was pretty much my my daily my daily thing. As usual, conversations which I potentially should not have been privy to, and information that definitely wasn't really for my 
is was I was exposed to because the dining room was a place in which, as I said, there were very few places where you could meet with people and the dining room was one of those places. And so on this particular afternoon, Liam and his advocate were having a meeting. I'll just explain. An advocate, essentially, when you are sectioned, you are allocated. It's free. Totally free. One of the perks of being sectioned. There are few and far between of those, but it is a perk, I suppose. Uh, essentially, an advocate is, is a little bit like a social worker, but not really. But their job is they are really, really well versed in mental health and your rights and human rights and all that stuff. Really important stuff, I should say. I was about to say nonsense, but it's not nonsense. And they are there to speak for and stand up for patients. And so they can support you in ward rounds. They can answer any questions that you might have. They meet with you just to check on your well-being and your welfare. Um, And so Liam was meeting with his advocate. And at this point, he must have been on the ward for a fair few weeks, I would say. And it was just such an interesting conversation. Because I learned so much about Liam that I had completely overlooked. And I, it was just eye-opening and slightly chilling for reasons which I will go into now. So essentially, the first thing that they were discussing was the fact that he had lost his appeal. So again, when you are sectioned, you are sectioned, when you're sectioned, you're sectioned by uh, an AMP, which is basically a social worker. And they are independent from the hospital. They've got nothing to do with it. And then also two other doctors. And the three of them have to agree that you are a danger to yourself or to others and therefore need to be be held for a period of time. As I say, with a section two, that's up to 28 days. With a section three, that's up to six months. But you have the opportunity to appeal these sections. And that means that you can, for free, again, you can contact a list of lawyers and they do, they genuinely give you like, I don't know, like an NHS list of recommended lawyers that you can contact who can come and there will be a tribunal in which the staff at that particular hospital and the doctors who have sectioned you will plead their case as to why they think that this person is a danger to themselves or others. And then you will have your opportunity to speak or your lawyer can do that for you. And then uh, another body of people, another board, and I think it's another AMP and another three impartial members of the mental health authority or something, they will then make a decision as to whether your case has been appealed and you can leave or whether you have to stay in hospital and they side with the with the medical staff. And from conversations that I had with one of the nurses that, as I've mentioned, who I was, who became quite close to, it was really 50-50. And she would say sometimes they would have cases where it was very, very clear that that patient to them needed to be in hospital and they managed to get to appeal and, and leave hospital. And they had no control over that as well. So it was, it was really, I don't think anyone could call it really in terms of whether or not an appeal would work. But I managed to glean from this conversation between Liam and his advocate that Liam's appeal had not worked and he was being held in hospital. And Liam's main thread throughout this conversation with his advocate was to say, what is next then? What's the next step for me? And his advocate was trying as hard as he could to explain to him (laughs) that there wasn't any next steps. And it was really quite a heart-rendering conversation and also a conversation which made you want to just shake Liam and be like, what? Why don't you understand? Like, this is it now. This is the end of the line. So he was saying, right, so you were brought in because you were having beliefs which other people weren't necessarily confirming were the truth and were reality. And immediately Liam was like, well, they are reality. And the man was like, okay, well, whether or not they aren't, that was the reason why you were brought in. And then you were brought in on a section because you refused to come willingly. And he was like, yes. And he was like, and obviously we've appealed. And he was like, yep. So what's next? 
And he was like, okay, well, the thing is, obviously, you didn't win that appeal. So the next step really is is not down to you. It's more down to the, the doctors and you together cooperating so that you can be in a position where you are ready to be reintroduced to the community. And Liam just could, he just could not understand this idea that there was no next step. He was like, so do I need to get a different lawyer now? Um, who do I speak to now? What can you do for me? You you could speak to someone for me. And he was like, okay, well, I suppose the next step really that you could take is to demonstrate that you're cooperating because I understand that you're not taking the medication that you're being told to take. And Liam was like, I don't need to take medication because I'm not unwell. I'm not unwell. So why would I need medication? And this perspective, I could kind of I could kind of see where he was coming from in terms of if you don't believe you're ill, then you don't need medication, do you? And my personal opinion of medication at that time specifically was not very positive because I didn't feel it was having any significant impact on my own mental health. And therefore, I could kind of see where he was coming from there. But obviously, I'm not involved in this conversation whatsoever. I'm just colouring having turned the volume down on the audiobook I'm listening to so that I can earwig because I'm a horrendous human being, or at least I certainly was at that stage. But the man was then trying to discuss the fact that potentially Liam was ill and raise this with him, which Liam just point, point blank refused to admit or accept. So the man said, you know, your wife brought your children uh, for you to have some, some time with your young children. And is it is it the case that you believe that they shouldn't be able to sit down in the family room because they were going to be poisoned if they sat down? And Liam was like, no, he to him, that was true. So he he wouldn't accept that he was wrong in having made that decision. And I basically gathered that his wife had now decided that it wasn't appropriate for the children to come and visit him. Which, to be fair, I mean, they were quite young children and going on a psychiatric ward for any young person or any older person. I mean, I know my husband found it particularly strenuous and many of my friends who came, they probably didn't bask in the ambulance of the atmosphere. You know, that that didn't really happen. So maybe she made a, a good decision not to, to return them, regardless of, of Liam's response. But it was clear that his wife did not want him to have contact with his children because his wife from what I gathered, was siding with, obviously, the medical professionals, as you probably would, because she could see that her husband was unwell. And so to me, this was a clear case now, you know, with all my medical know-how that I'd managed to gather throughout my time in the hospital. I am joking, I don't have any medical mental health qualifications, as I say every single time. But to me, it looked like he had psychosis because he was having these really, really strong beliefs, which weren't necessarily founded in reality. But I also saw the difficulty of Liam's situation for himself, because if you're in Brian's situation and you believe that you're God, then I mean, I would say that the majority of the time for Brian, that was quite a positive psychotic belief, I would say, but also it wasn't a belief that whether or not it was positive for him, it didn't actually hinder his cooperation with the medical staff because his beliefs, they didn't directly conflict with the beliefs that he should be taking medication. He was always okay to do that and, and would accept that. However, if you believe that you're being poisoned and that people are following you and you're having these paranoid, I don't know, thoughts, processes which you know make you convinced that if your children sit down on a seat in a family room to visit you while you're in hospital they will be poisoned it's very unlikely that you are going to accept medication from people who are keeping you somewhere against your will so if you're being kept somewhere against your will and you believe that people are after you and they're trying to poison you and then they're offering you medication you're not going to take it are you 
So I suppose I could somewhat empathise with why Liam was making the the decisions that he was potentially making. But anyway, this conversation went on and on and on because Liam had very, very circular thinking and he just kept coming back to what the next step was because he was determined that there would be a next step. And I have to say, I really admired his determination. And so I suppose what the advocate was doing was really patiently trying to draw to Liam's attention that if he didn't adjust the way in which he behaved in hospital and cooperate somewhat, he was unlikely to be leaving anytime soon, which was probably not a very easy message to hear. And one part of the conversation which I found particularly kind of chilling, I suppose, was the reference to why Liam had been admitted in the first place and how he had actually attacked members of the public and the advocate said, you know, and you've you've also discussed thoughts of attacking other patients and of, of attacking staff as well, given the um, the way in which you're convinced that people are after you and that you're being poisoned. And Liam was he was like, and so you know, are you still have like, would you still consider attacking a, a member of staff if they? try to give you medication or whatever and he was like yeah I definitely would and I was like bloody hell I'm eating three meals a day with this man he's got thoughts of attacking people and remember he's a burly 30 year old strong man you know I wasn't he could, he could knock me out no end although to be fair at the time that probably wouldn't have been too bad a thing so maybe I should have been less it's interesting isn't it because my reaction was like oh dear let's let's give him a wide berth when in reality, maybe the suicidal part of my brain should have really just sought him out and uh, made some sort of dodgy deal. I'm joking, of course. Anyway, the conversation, I have to say, was probably not very satisfactory for Liam in terms of what his expectations for them were. And I did feel for the advocate because, bless him, he, he had his work cut out with Liam. And as I say, I don't exactly know what happened to Liam because I left before he did. But as the advocate outlined, it's very unlikely that Liam would have been released into the community if he still had thoughts of attacking people and was very clearly psychotic in terms of his beliefs. And so I suppose the likely situation would have been that they would have forced medication on him. And so I suppose maybe that happened. I don't know. I just don't know. What did I learn from Liam? Well, I learned that I completely misjudged him. So I took him at face value and just assumed that he was a quiet man, maybe tried to kill himself, something along those lines. Maybe that was just how my brain worked. to just assume that anyone I saw, yeah, you've probably tried to kill yourself too. When obviously he was actually really significantly unwell in a way which was massively affecting his marriage, his life. It was causing him to lash out at people. And when you looked at him, he just seemed like a, very, a fairly straightforward guy. You know, if you had one conversation with Brian, you'd think, right, OK. In fact, you wouldn't even need to have a conversation with him necessarily. But just to see him walking around with that diagram and showing it to people or blessing people or, you know, it was very clear that Brian had a mental health issue. And similarly with Philip, similarly with Stephanie, I would say the majority of people in there, e even if it wasn't all the time, they would have moments like, for example, with Susan, which she, as I said previously, she seemed fairly normal the majority of the time, but she had outbursts of rage. And they were kind of her little tells that maybe she was suffering from a mental health disorder. But with Liam, he was quiet as a mouse. I wouldn't have known, would not have known if I hadn't been sat in that room. And I really learned that actually you can have a hugely significant and debilitating mental health issue 
and look completely normal and behave most of the time or even all the time in a completely normal manner if you were just being observed by an impartial passerby. And that's really quite scary and quite significant. Not because I think, oh, we should be really, really paranoid and afraid of people with mental health disorders and really suspicious of strangers, but more because if you don't understand what's going on beneath the surface with someone, it's very difficult to be able to support them and also to be able to communicate with them in in a way which is going to really get through to them, I suppose. And with Liam, certainly, I think a lot of his problems stemmed from a lack of understanding of, of other people because he just couldn't understand that, number one, the police weren't going to come and get him. Number two, he couldn't leave whenever he wanted to leave. Number three, that he, you know, his case was actually at the end of the road and he now was going to be in hospital for the foreseeable future until he changed his behaviour. He couldn't appreciate or accept that. And I suppose what was missing there was the 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 right medium of communication with him. And I don't know that that was even possible, but that was where the situation kind of ground to a halt with him. I wouldn't have known that he was psychotic without overhearing that conversation. But also, and I suppose I also learned that depending on what type of psychosis you have, your recovery can become even more difficult because in his situation, as I've said, for him to recover or become well or I don't know however you want to phrase it for him to be able to to do that he was going to have to take some medication or obviously that was the psychiatrist's belief that he was going to have to take some medication there might be people who who think maybe he didn't I don't know I don't have enough medical knowledge about this but obviously they were they were certainly prescribing him with medication and they certainly weren't going to release him into the community until he had taken it. But because of the type of psychosis that he had, he was very unlikely to want to do that willingly. And that is a really, really challenging thing and was a huge obstacle in terms of his recovery, but was also the reason he was in hospital in the first place. So it was a really, really difficult situation for him. And and so I suppose that kind of leads on to that kind of leads me on to what you can learn from Liam. And I suppose when it comes to mental health, it's about not making face value assumptions about someone. So someone can look fine, be cripplingly depressed. You know, I was very, very depressed. Clearly, I was suicidal for a long time. And the reason uh, potentially that the nurses struggled to to deal with me, maybe in a slightly similar way to Liam, was that I didn't present in the way that people expected me to present because I would get up and I would wash and I would have conversations. And I wasn't constantly talking. I mean, if you wanted to talk to me about the meaning of life and that, I would very, very quickly and swiftly tell you that I didn't want to live and all of this. But I wouldn't try and dominate conversations with with that you know when I saw friends and stuff I I would try and make light of the situation so if you're depressed it doesn't mean that you can't tell a joke or you can't laugh or you can't I don't know like you you still are a version of you and so you shouldn't I suppose dismiss someone's mental health or, or base it purely on how they present because actually you don't know what's going on beneath the surface at all as in the case of of Liam and I think that's really really important to learn especially going forward with with someone as well so for example 
the fact that I'm out of hospital now, that doesn't mean that, that everything's better and everything's fine. That isn't how it works. That's not how mental health is. I think mental health is is an extension of your physical health. And therefore, you know, you don't go to the gym three times and that's you with a six pack for life. That's not how it works. You have to constantly work at it. And there'll be moments which are, are better and moments which aren't better, which are actually cripplingly horrendous. And that's that's how it is, unfortunately. And so I think it's unhelpful for you and for your own ability to relate and communicate and empathize with other people if you kind of regard someone's mental health based on oh well you know clearly she's really depressed because she lies in bed all day or clearly he's just completely crazy around the bend because you know he thinks he's god but this guy over here he seems absolutely fine he's quiet he's behaving brilliant that is not how it is and i think you know if if you applied that that same logic to physical health and a physical illness and you know oh you've got cancer but you look fine I suppose you can learn to accept that you might never really know how someone is doing and even if they tell you that they're fine they might not be fine and even if they act in a way which to you is conveniently normal in appearance that doesn't necessarily mean that they are normal I mean, when I say normal, I'm using air quotes because I do that all the time on my podcast. But I hope you know what I mean by that in terms of ways in which are conventionally socially accepted, let's say. And I suppose the best thing that we can do is is be patient and be accepting and be tolerant of people, even if we don't necessarily understand what they're going through. Because that's got to be more useful than judgment and dismissal, which fundamentally take us no further in understanding and accepting other people and our own mental health. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. And also, at the time I'm recording this episode, for the 1,000 downloads. What a milestone. To celebrate, I'm doing a little giveaway competition as a gesture of thanks to you all. All you have to do to enter is retweet or share the Chewy Head podcast on your social media. Make sure to tag me in the post or the Chewy Head podcast. And you could be in with a shot or maybe a double shot latte on me. That's right. Enter now for your chance to win a Starbucks gift card. I'll announce the winner in next week's podcast. So you'll just have to tune in then to find out if you've won. Next week, I'll be sharing my encounters with mental health and transgenderism through Kane's story. See you then.